For Christmas 2013, it's the Ho Ho Hover Thinking It podcast supplement. Benedict Cumberbatch, before he went crazy and started a cult. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, and Merry Christmas. Hey, folks, it's Rather. Uh, This is an extra episode that we were releasing on Christmas Day 2013 as a little present uh, for you to say thank you for being a listener to the Overthinking It podcast. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate your support through the holiday season and through the whole year. And we had this extra episode uh, that we recorded over the summer for safety. And once I start playing the uh, episode, you'll hear why and a little bit of the, the story behind Behind it. Well, we didn't end up using the episode because we ended up recording all originals over the summer. So now we have one uh, in the tank that we need to burn off because it's actually topical. It's about uh, the 2013 movie season and the movie season of 2003, 1993, 1983, and 1913 a little bit, if you can believe it. So uh, we hope you enjoy it. We hope it uh, keeps you warm during these uh, cold winter nights. And we'll be back to our normal publishing schedule next week. So we will see you after the holidays and see you in 2014. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel, and we are celebrating today. It is, it is a... It's turkey time! It gobble, is, gobble! <laughs> <laughs> it is a momentous occasion uh, that we are marking today with this podcast. Uh, first, a little, a little background. Uh, over the summer, because of you know, vacations and schedules and availability, uh, though we always try to record the podcast every week and re- release a fresh one each week, and I think that that's something that makes it sort of special, right? It's not this like product that's sort of... I don't know, squeezed out and then like portioned for you. It's actually a conversation that we have um, about stuff that's on our mind right now. And, you you know, you hear it, you know, hours after we post it on the Internet. Um, Over the summer, we, you know, we go away, we travel. There's some conflicts and scheduling problems. And so we we pre-record a couple to have uh, in the bank. And if if you're listening to this one, it's because uh, we couldn't schedule a podcast recording. You have something better to do right now. (laughs) Right. But uh, we foresaw this, and weeks or months in the past, we had the conversation that we are having right now. Um, wow, I feel like I'm in a. Woo-hoo. I'm in. I feel like I'm in Looper or something like that. Um, but uh, so we thought that you know over the summer we spent we basically do movie of the week. We do whatever the big summer blockbuster release is on the podcast, and that's fun. But it has its limits, and one of those limits is that it lacks historical context. Right? It lacks a, a sense of the the great scope of cinematic history. And uh, you know, it's fortunate that as we were coming together to pre-tape this episode, um, someone pointed out uh, that in in 2003, a a remarkable cinematic document was uh, was released. <laughs> one one which I, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say provokes strong, passionate feeling uh, among everyone here on the podcast um it's it's a violent story but it's a story about how a criminal lesbian a tough guy hitman with a heart of gold and a mentally challenged man <laughs> came to be best friends 
through a hostage. <laughs> <laughs> Which is its official summary on IMDb, like its tagline on IMDb. <laughs> I'm not making fun. We're trying to be as accurate as possible. <laughs> this is a historical document, people. <laughs> We're like Pliny the Younger, the much younger. IMDb is admissible at court. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'm referring to uh, Martin Brest's uh, Gigli. 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 Um, so, panel, your task to begin this to begin this uh, this podcast, where we look back at the top films of ten years ago and ten years before that, and ten years before that. Uh, what can you say about this film, Gigli? Say something about Gigli. <laughs> about uh, drink, because first in the alphabet is not Peter Fenzel; it is Ben Adams. Hey, how's it going? I'm all right. So I actually have not seen Geely, so this what? is a little Get bit. What? Get out of here! <laughs> Stop <laughs> done. Everybody. You're done, Adams. You're done. Calling it sick tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> this this one's a little high difficulty for me, uh, but since we're talking about historical context and 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 the past, I think where Geely needs to to fall in in the in film history is it needs to be shown to celebrities at a certain point in their career. And then they need to compare, like, Parker, which Jennifer Lopez just made, and then show the clip of Ben Affleck uh, getting the Oscar uh, earlier this year. <laughs> this is a show that, like, your career can take strange trajectories. And, like, you just need to be ready for that. Because I think in 2003, in particular after Gigli was made, it was just a dis- disaster. Uh, I think people would not have expected that one of them would be getting an Oscar and one of them would be starring in movies that barely get a release. We still were hoping their marriage was going to work out at the time. Yeah, <laughs> we still, yeah, we we still were calling them by a cutesy uh, combined name at the time, right? Yeah, which was I think what like Jaffleck. <laughs> <Should Yes. been. laughs> it's that insurance. It's the one you gotta have, Jaffleck. <laughs> uh, Belinky, Matthew Belinky, drink again. You are not Peter Fenzel. Okay, here are the lucky stars. (laughs) I'm I'm just going to read off to you the last five movies that that writer-director Martin Bress has has, has directed. So uh, five movies ago, 1984, Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, Four years later, comes back Midnight Run, uh, great movie, uh, De Niro, Charles Grodin. Uh, Four years later after that, Scent of a Woman, Al Pacino, great great film. Uh, Then takes a six-year break, comes back with Meet Joe Black. So that's where we get the first little wobble there. Meet Joe Black, if you haven't seen, it's like a, like a three-hour, 20-minute movie that's like, it's supposed to be about like sort of death takes human form, and most of it is about like corporate negotiations between him. <laughs> and it also, I will never forgive Meet Joe Black because it was one of these things where I'm on vacation with my entire family. This is like 10 years ago. And we're like sitting in a hotel room in like Rio de Janeiro, and we have like nothing, we can't agree on anything to do, so like we're watching TV, and there's one um, there's one station that's showing an English-language movie. We just meet Joe Black, and none of us knew that Meet Joe Black has like a 10 minute long, really explicit sex scene. Uh, <laughs> um, is it with Anthony it, Hopkins or is it with uh, Brad Pitt? It, it's, it's, uh, uh, yes, yeah. the answer to your question is yes, it's with Anthony oh, Hopkins that one? and Brad Pitt. <laughs> um, and it's just like, you know, and it's one of these things where in the United States, it probably would have been edited somewhat for TV, but in Rio, uh, they probably found more footage to add to it for TV, <laughs> the air, unless they made it long explicit and it it went on forever 
Um, and and it was, anyway, so um, <laughs> to continue, so then uh, five years later, for Micho Black, he bounces back with Gigli and hasn't made a movie since then. <laughs> so, but I do have to say, I'm glad that Martin Bress made Beverly Hills Cop. So it, was, it wasn't all bad for Martin Bress. <laughs> It's not, he's not like, you know, the dude who directed all those Resident Evil movies. <laughs> Pete Fenzel, say something about and Geely. I could, I could say a lot about Geely. I mean, the first thing I often say about Geely is that I believe that that year, uh, or at least the year up to that point, uh, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were on 51 out of 52 covers of People magazine. <laughs> and I think we've talked on the podcast before about how so many people made so much money off of their relationship that weren't them, <laughs> right? That they were actually <laughs> tremendously popular. And it was a real shame that the way that they chose to catch in with it was, was Geely, which was was of course really really awful. Uh, I will I will say I you gotta give me a few things about Jiggly. I, I can't just limit it to one thing if you open this. <laughs> uh, the biggest problem with Jiggly is the uh, mentally challenged character who's just grossly offensive and terrible. Uh, I believe it's played by Justin Bartha. Uh, who is who? Who would go on to be in the National Treasure movies, <laughs> uh, and also would be in the Hangover films as the guy who they always leave behind? Wow! How about that? I'm reading this out loud right now, but I just realized it that the mentally challenged kid from Geely is the guy from the Hangover who gets left behind when they go do their adventures together. Uh-huh. Oh man! But the guy that I wanted to mention is the opposite side of the coin from the writer director Martin Brest, who has since done 40 films. Films, uh, including such hits as uh, uh, Rio, Shrek, Happy Feet, um, gosh, uh, Han- you did Hancock, I guess, Jumper, United 93, uh, all, all sorts of stuff, Alfie, The Born Supremacy. And I'm talking about the second biggest sin of Jiggly, which may not be this man's fault, but I'm talking about John Powell. And uh, John Powell is an award-winning film scorer, and by all rights, very good at what he does. But if you've ever actually watched Jiggly, you would realize that one of the most awful, abhorrent things about the movie is how grossly inappropriate and awkward the music is while the movie is going on. <laughs> right? So you have this story about this hitman and this sort of con artist who is uh, kind of performatively lesbian in a way that really, really would not be acceptable in movies today, uh, and it really wasn't acceptable before 2003 either they were like this was the year of queer eye for the straight guy where like you know we were we were in this space where people were sort of comfortable with really outlandish gay characters um whereas immediately beforehand they were not comfortable at all with anything and then immediately afterwards they wanted to see real people um but uh no this is like a story about a hitman a card artist a really unfortunate hostage situation with a mentally challenged kid and like everybody is under threat of death the whole time and these two people are trying to find love And the background music is like soft acoustic guitar, like a lot of the time. (laughs) And it's like, it's like scored sort of like a normal romantic comedy, um, which when Jennifer Lopez has a bunch of monologues in the movie, which is the other thing the movie is remembered for, at least maybe that's just me. Like maybe it was remembered for this closer to when it actually came out. She has a bunch of very sexually explicit and or really awkward monologues. The point of which is to make Ben Affleck uncomfortable. Uh, wait, Wait, she talks about, uh, she talks about turkeys in the context of sex acts, uh, gobble gobble is is a note of that sort. Um, she talks a lot about like. Um I mean, I'm not going to go into too much detail about it. There's no point. But uh, but the point is that like she's doing these things to make the hitman who is who she is like in this 
semi-business relationship with uncomfortable in the hopes that he will slip up and that she will then be able to abscond with whatever the MacGuffin, I guess the MacGuffin is this mentally challenged child, uh, and, and thus like solve the problems of the movie. And beneath it is just the softest, sweetest music that you ever heard played while Jennifer Lopez is rolling around on the ground in tight jeans. And it's just so awkward. Uh, but somehow in this nuke that went off that like threw Ben Affleck at Jennifer Lopez miles away from the destination such that they had to like crawl on their hands and knees for years before they were finally like you know famous again or whatever this guy was in the uh, fridge right I was he in, climbed inside was, the fridge and exactly when, when Jiggly was nuked, he was in the fridge, and he was catapulted <laughs> safely out of the blast. Uh, and you know what? He was so gutsy about this that he actually also scored Paycheck, the immediately subsequent Ben Affleck movie, uh, which actually, as I recall, was pretty good. Right? Uh, Paycheck was pretty decent. But at that point, the damage had been done, and it was too late. Um, that I would say that like uh, that John Powell knows what he did, <laughs> although maybe he was forced. It's possible he was under duress of some kind. Um, I also do remember that Meet Joe Black was one of those movies in the video store that came in two VHSs, uh, which was usually reserved for things about the, the kiss Civil of War. death. Yeah, exactly. or like Shogun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the Shogun Ten Commandments. Was, yeah. It's like, the, yeah, these are the movies that are based on books that back in the late 80s had the puffy, glittery, metallic font on the front, like Shogun. Um, don't you guys remember that? How, like, really important books? Maybe oh, yeah. this is just... And yeah, I yeah, always yeah. would gravitate towards those because I got to rent one movie at Blockbuster, and that's why I ended up watching Roots, like, four times. <laughs> because I'm like, hey, I get, I get all these cassettes, and that counts as one pick. You guys are suckers for, like, you know, renting Jurassic Park again. So how do you think it changed you as a young man to have watched Roots as many times as you did? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I really like LeVar Burton. <laughs> I think we all do. But, That's you, something yeah. do. but you don't have to take my word for it. So wait, when did Daredevil came out in 2002, right? So uh, the movie, right? Is that, is, that, uh, is that 2002, Ben Affleck? Um, I know that came out when I was still in college. And it's as such, 2003. Wow. So, so, so here's the interesting thing. So, 2003 is when Jiggly comes out. I refuse to call it Jiggly more than like once or twice in a forced manner. So, Jiggly comes out in 2003. This is the movie that comes out immediately after the movie where Ben Affleck met his actual wife. <laughs> right? Like, because um, they called off the marriage, right? Like, they were going to get married. Puff Daddy got them his and hers Rolls Royces, right? And then, like, a week or so before the, ma- the wedding, they called it off, and Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez didn't get married, right? Wow. Yeah, uh, and but it turns out that the movie that he made before Jiggly was the movie where he met his wife. Right. I, there's a, exactly like the Jennifer Lopez movie, uh, The Wedding Planner. I saw that movie. <laughs> that movie was really bad. <laughs> Although maybe I just wasn't ready for that kind of relationship movie at the time. I was, I was still quite young. Uh, so let me j- just to answer my 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 part of the oh, yeah. question. I uh, before we move on from Jiggly or jig- Jiggly, <laughs> if that's possible, never, <laughs> we never shall. <laughs> never. I'm just like picturing like Doctor Manhattan from Watchmen being like Jiggly never ends. <laughs> jiggly is always happening. <laughs> uh, but anyway, continue. Uh, I'd l- I'd like to to say according to Box Office Mojo, the titles of some movies that made more money than Jiggly uh, the year it was released. 
So um, the triplets of Belleville, which was <laughs> oh my God, which is <laughs> and, great, by the way. Yeah, which is uh, yeah, super um, uh, Oscar contender, as I recall, but uh, not uh, not what you associate with wide release or movie stars. Um, that made more Tupac Resurrection. <laughs> not a resident a hologram no, not yet. we were years we were almost a decade away from hologram tupac at this point his resurrection was entirely animatronic <laughs> uh the french movie swimming pool which was not which even not, as distinguished from swim fan yes right and yeah, did swim no. fan also come out that year no swim fan had come out in 2002 uh, which is a horror movie about instant messaging. <laughs> it's about AOL. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, oh, uh, Dickie Roberts, former child star with oh, David is Spade. Is that Frankie Muniz? No, oh, no, that's, no, no. Sorry. That's, isn't that David Spade? Wow. Jeez. Dickie Roberts, former child star. Yeah, that one. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, you know... Shall I continue? <laughs> yes. Give me two more. <laughs> two more reps. Come on, let's do these reps. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, da, 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 uh, both matchstick men uh, and... Oh, no, no, sorry. I got national security mixed up with national treasure. Who hasn't made that mistake? Uh, matchstick men... And um, Agent Cody Banks. That's the one that had Frankie. <laughs> there's Frankie Muniz. <laughs> there, there's the guy. I knew, I knew he was big in 2003. Both of that guys. Um, instead of, instead of uh, working in, because she was going to play the uh, Jennifer Lopez part, uh, but dropped out, uh, Halle Berry instead uh, was in Gothica, which, was, uh, which made more money than uh, Gili. Love Actually. Oh, the best movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Can I just say quickly, like I'm working on a comedy project right now where we're doing improv scenes that are based on that are like inspired by movie clips and uh Ryan Sheely for also on the podcast is is heavily involved in it, put it together. And uh he's like, Hey guys, go out there when you're reading you looking at YouTube, you know, send clips that, that you like, you know, uh to me. Um, so that I can keep them on a database for using in our show. And I went to YouTube to look for movie clips, and I spent like 45 minutes just looking at clips from Love Actually. <laughs> like, that's like half the length of the movie, and I was just looking at, like, it's, over and over. It's hard to believe. So Love Actually is 10 years old. Yeah. I, th- I could have think it, I would have thought it was older, but no. 10 years old. It's I mean, just because it, it has that classic, it has that timeless quality, right? And so many of its actors have that timeless quality, too. <laughs> I, I, sorry, I just, I want to continue. No, no. Um, <laughs> Laura Croft, uh, excuse me, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. <laughs> Tomb Raider. Is that, is that the fir- that's not the first one. No. No, that's the one where she has the fist fight with Alfred Molina, the archaeologist. <laughs> I think that that's rated in one of our, I don't think that was one of your top least plausible fist fights in movies, but it was really implausible. Uh, she punches a shark. Alfred Molina, and she she's Dr. Octopus there. He, he, yeah, but it wasn't Dr. Octopus yet. At the time, he was a mere Nobel Prize winning archaeologist. <laughs> right. He, he trained under Dr. Indiana Jones until he got stabbed by that trap after he, he got the idol but refused to throw the whip. <laughs> and then he became a matchmaker briefly in the steps of the Ukraine, right, on Broadway. Uh, anyway. Um, and uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie. Oh, my God. Oh, that's a good one. And oh, sorry, sorry. I'm going. I'm going up. I mean, because we're eventually going to get to the top ten, and that's the the real point here. But um, 
Oh, no, I lost. Oh, American Wedding, the follow-up to the American Pie franchise. I think it may have been the last one that got a theatrical you know, they, release. They actually very recently did a new American Reunion. But it was yeah. direct-to-video, right? Was it? Direct to Netflix. I mean, there's no video now. Direct to Netflix, I guess. Right? I always thought Sean William Scott could have had more of a career. I thought he was he was good. I really liked the rundown. Yeah, the I rundown really, really good. He didn't quite get his moment in the sun. Uh, I don't know. It was also in 2003. Stifler will. will the rundown was 2003. Yeah, the rundown was 2003 in September. So it came, so Jiggly came out on August 1st. And uh, the rundown came out in September 26th, so it was like a month and a half after Jiggly came out. It was a big out. couple months for Sean William Scott. It's just yeah, the last yeah. time anyone's <laughs> ever been able to say that. The rundown a little bit, just to give you a sense of what it was like. I remember there was a poster for the rundown in a subway station I used to go to on my way to work every morning. Uh, and the, the poster, of course, has The Rock looking all you know, badass and aloof in front of the title of the movie. And someone in Sharpie had written a speech bubble over his head that said, Donald Rumsfeld equals war criminal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that stayed up there for like a month and a half. So. Yeah, yeah. I always yeah. thought that if I were going to like audition for something, which I'm not, but I would give the uh, the Christopher Walken has a great tooth fairy monologue where he's attempting to to equate his feelings with that of a child who placed a tooth under a pillow but then did not get get any money, and then he's attempting to like explain the concept of the tooth fairy to his like Mexican henchman, his South American henchman who who have never heard of the tooth fairy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? Oh, by the way, every time somebody says, like, I wish that this popular actor had had more of a career, I want to look it up. Uh, and it turns out that, uh, that Stifler is actually doing quite well for himself thanks to a yeah. little franchise called Ice Age, where he is the voice of one of the main characters, I believe. Really? Uh, the character of Crash, who is, uh, I guess, what, like a little gopherish kind of guy? Um, I believe. I'm not sure. I haven't seen the Ice Age movies. But yeah, but like, you know, they're going on to like the third or fourth of those. So I'm sure he's made a bazillion dollars of money ish. Um, I mean, Cop Out. Just recently in the the worst movie ever made, movie 43. Oh, is that the worst movie ever made? Did you see it? It is this bizarre movie. Movie 43 is this sort of sketch comedy movie that just came out um, at the very beginning of this year and has like a huge amount of like very well known stars. Uh, like Hugh Jackman is in it, Kate Winslet is in it. I'm looking at the list: Dennis Quaid, um, Seth MacFarlane, and like an acting role. And it was apparently just like ungodly, and not just like you know the kind of movie where like you know the the, the mainstream critics didn't get it, but like you know anyone with a sense of humor thinks it's funny. Apparently, Movie 43 was just genuinely not funny at all. Yeah, I have no idea how they got that to happen. I mean, it's directed by Bob Odenkirk, I guess. Oh, this is funny. It it is 4% positive on Rotten Tomatoes, which is the lowest (laughs) I've ever seen. I'm looking at it on IMDb, and it has, it lists uh, two directors, and then it says 11 more credits, and then it lists two writers, and then 28 more credits. So there's a lot of cooks in this kitchen, that's for sure. Everyone was like, okay, my sketch isn't that funny, but certainly like (laughs) Liebe Schreiber is funny. Yeah. Richard Gere is hilarious. Like, like the one with like Emma Stone is for yeah. Richard Gere is it a Kate Bos- and everyone's like, look, if they got Kate Bosworth, if they got Justin Long, or Uma, Uma Thurman is it a Kirsten Bell, John Hodgman is it? There's this has got to have some sort of a record for like the most you know the, the most talent to to the least of um, success. It must have a, a big BAPS number, right? Uh, the BAPS yes. number is the number I use for like the ratio of the number of Oscars that the movie has made versus how terrible it is. Because <laughs> BAPS stars Oscar winner Halle Berry and Oscar winner Martin Landau. Uh-huh. Uh, um, Terrence Howard. I'm just yeah, going to keep yeah. reading 
The, the list of people in it, by the way, is Great endless. Kenyer. Common, there, isn't it? <laughs> what is going gotta on? Be, there's got to be some sort of story behind the story where the, the director was just going around to celebrities and just, like, making up the fact that other celebrities were in it to, like, get them <laughs> on board. Like, well, it was, okay, well, this guy's in it. Okay, well, I'll do it. And then they just use that to go back to the original celebrity to convince them to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like a pyramid scheme. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh but, like, man! Did it ever occur to them to like do the same thing with comedy writers? Like, <laughs> like it could be funny. So the movie was developed at a company called Overture Films, which then put it into turnaround. Matt, what does turnaround mean? Turnaround is is where they basically press pause on making your movie, and and it, the, usually films don't uh, don't emerge from that. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what happened is this this company was making this movie then the company uh stopped making this movie and then another company started making this movie and after shortly after picking up the movie bought the company that had originally made the movie Yeah it's when it's when it's when properties are kicked from one from one studio to another and it's it's uh usually is the death of of I don't know. Uh, I mean, this just sounds like there was a lot of debt that was being restructured <laughs> and that there was some sort of sketchy financial thing going on. I think, but, uh, I think we need to make like a pact to watch this because like, <laughs> in a single segment of this movie called Truth or Dare, the cast includes Halle Berry, Stephen Merchant, and Snooki. <laughs> like, and like, I believe the reviews that it's not funny, but I just, I kind of wanted to see what the hell happened. I'm looking at the IMDb trivia and one of them says Colin Farrell was originally cast as the leprechaun. <laughs> Trey Parker and Matt Stone were originally set to direct a segment but dropped out Uh, George Clooney also turned down a cameo where he would be shown being bad at picking up women which is hilarious (laughs) oh man Adam, yeah. The list of people who turned this movie down include Anton Yelchik, Yelchin, J.J. Uh, Abrams' Chekhov from Star Trek, who was supposed to play a necrophiliac, but was removed after a highly negative response from a test screening. <laughs> so it's not like he's like, oh, I can't be in this movie. It's like people watching it were like, no, no, he did it. Terrible. He did it. He effed the corpse. Yeah, exactly. And they were like, nope. So, so how does he feel that he's the guy that effed the corpse and got cut from movie 43? <laughs> you got left on the editing floor of movie 43. That's the kind of thing where if you're getting in a knife fight or a broken bottle fight in Hollywood, like that's what you say to intimidate the other guy. <laughs> it's like, you think you Man. With me. You know when they had good movies? 2003, 10, ten years ago. 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the yeah. anniversary of Jiggly on this Jiggly Day. All Jiggly Days. Why is this day different from all other days? It's because it's Jiggly's 10th anniversary day. That's why. <laughs> we jiggle. Uh, all right, here are the top 10 films of uh, 2003 by box office, not by artistic merit. Um, God, no. Uh, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Though that Yay! one, that one was pretty high on artistic merit, also. But that was like fall, right? That was just that was in summer two thousand. No, yeah, this I think is they were all Christmas. All the Lord of the Rings ones were all like Christmas Christmas-y. releases. Yeah, yeah. Um, whatever. Two thousand three. Okay, so then Finding Nemo, yay! Also yeah, good. That great. Yeah. Also good on that one. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean: The Curse of the Black Pearl. Oh, is that Pirates of the Caribbean two, or is that the first one? No, that's not. That, this is. Uh, is this two? Is this two or three? Or the first? The no, first, that's the, this is the first the, one. Yeah, the first one was is good. This, 
Oh, okay. Good. Yes. Sorry. Oh, is that <laughs> accurate? Is it the first parts of the Caribbean movie was 2003? I, I mistook. Yeah. You know what? I think, yes, I think it, it was. was. This is the first parts of the Caribbean. That was one was great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was misled by the subtitle is what happened into thinking it was yeah. a, a, okay. The matrix reloaded. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, there was so much invested in, in like things that just didn't work out in 2003. Right. Right. Like the, <laughs> The marriage of Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez <laughs> and the Matrix, the Matrix sequels. And the right. guys who got away with it are the freaking composer from Happy Feet and Keanu Reeves, who left like $40 million. Right. Which he gave uh, a lot of charity, I believe, because um, he's awesome. Bruce so. Almighty. Oh, that is a bus movie if I ever saw one. Jeez <laughs> Louise. Saw that one on a bus. You know, it's a really compelling story, a story about a news reporter from Buffalo who hates his job. That's a great thing to make a movie about. <laughs> And then you give him supernatural powers for no reason. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you guys see Bruce Almighty? Because that movie was phenomenally successful, I remember. Yeah, that, that was... Cause, I mean, I, they made a sequel in the last couple years. They made a sequel without Bruce. Yeah, without Bruce. It was Bruce. a trick. Yeah, yeah. They made the one about Noah, right, with Steve Carell, where he had an yeah. arc. Yeah. The, yeah, the right. most, I believe still holds the record for the most expensive comedy ever made. It was like a $200 million comedy. Yeah, the war in Afghanistan doesn't count. X X two X Men United. See that one? That was great. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, Magneto holding up the plane with his hand, look, looking at the plane. Elf, which is a classic. This is two thousand three. Those are the two best Christmas movies. Those are the Christmas movies I watch every year. Are Love Actually and Elf. There are two, my two favorites. I watch my Elf with my family, and I watch Love Actually alone, and, uh, and I don't bring a bottle of wine because I'm afraid of the mood that I would end up in. But um, <laughs> there are surprising about yeah, no. movies that are like not explicitly about Christmas, and yet like Christmas is so intrinsic to to the sort of the spirit of the, like Love Actually is about love. It's not about Christmas. It's not like you know nobody no. nobody is. It's not about like you know we need to dress up as Santa, but somehow like Chris, Die Hard's another one, right? It's hard to imagine Die Hard. It's not it's like we talked about it too, but yeah, but like uh, Elf yeah, is but like, also Elf is Iron Man film. three for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, does it snow in Alabama? Nothing. Whatever. Like, is, that a, is that a movie? Snow in Alabama. Later. I, I remember reading somewhere that it was originally supposed to be Michigan, and basically, remember like the 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 state he goes. To, I think it's supposed to be Alabama, and it's because they got like tax breaks at the last minute, and they just didn't bother rewriting the snow. Oh, so it's they're in Alabama and it's snowing, and that's something like that. I, I don't know if it's actually Alabama, but it's not it's certainly not Michigan. Yeah. Anyway, go on with two thousand three because so you haven't named my favorite Christmas. One yet. Um, yeah, uh, Elf. This is also the movie that brought. Zoe Deschanel into into the public consciousness, right? Yeah, she, she hadn't done anything super big before That's then. She was in all she was in Almost Famous, but uh, this was her first role that was that was sort of a leading or starring role in a mainstream movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, uh, Terminator Three: Rise of the Machines. Yes, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the Matrix Revolutions later in the year. What oh, a it's guy. right. They, they scrunched them into the same year, which is odd. I remember. I, I remember leaving after we watched Matrix Revolutions, and uh, there being a line of people outside the movie theater who gave me just the dirtiest freaking look because I was talking about how terrible the movie was. 
and then it's and I remember we, we went to some cafe and we sat down and we were harping about how terrible the movie was and like people from other tables in the cafe came over to us to tell us to stop talking about the Matrix Revolutions because they were excited to see it. Hold like, on to our illusions. <laughs> there are certain doorways that you pass through in your life, right? I think that Rod, uh, Roger, Roger Sterling in uh, Mad Men says this, that life is a series of doorways that you walk through and that close behind you and you can't go back. And one of them, one of the big ones for all of us was actually seeing the Matrix Revolution. Right. Because <laughs> it just instantly changed your attitude about the Matrix Revolutions. Uh, I, remember, also- I remember having so much faith that it was going to like make Matrix Reloaded good. Yeah, like, it was going to redeem this it. movie that like has all this potential, right. like oh, there's going to be all this cool stuff that's going to be revealed, and it's just disastrous. Yeah, this is like the yeah. sunk cost fallacy, right? It's like, well, they spent two hundred million dollars on the last one, and it wasn't satisfying, so yeah. this one is probably going to be better. <laughs> I actually uh, put money real like I, there was a twenty dollar bet on what I would refer to at the time as the meta matrix idea, which is that the the, the world of the matrix uh, that that they thought they were in the real world it actually wasn't going to be the real world because indeed, how do you know that you've reached the real world and not merely in another layer of the simulation? And I was one hundred percent convinced because otherwise, how could you have a happy ending in a world where like you can't even free people from the tubes because the world can't support them and i was like i was totally convinced that like the world wasn't actually that bad and once they broke out of the simulation for and whatever anyway i'm bitter about if you're taking if you're taking that twenty dollars and invested it in coffee to write in have a lot more than twenty dollars right now Uh, (laughs) although maybe not i don't know and And, uh, keep going that number 10 um cheaper by the dozen oh now, as I understand it, that was not a faithful adaptation. No, the Steve, right? yeah, the Steve Martin one. I, w- I want to go on to number 11, though, because okay. I think it's, it's more interesting well, for us. Well, go to 11. It's like 10, <laughs> but louder. Bad Boys 2. Yes. Oh, That's yes. the one I've been waiting for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then, okay, so, so okay, I'm going to just rattle off a few movies from the next 10, right? Bad Boys 2, Angley's Hulk, Too Fast, Too Furious, mm-hmm. uh... Spy Kids 3D Game Over and SWAT with Colin Farrell, <laughs> as I recall. Oh, yeah. I remember I wanted to make a website that's because the, the ad campaign was either you're SWAT or you're not. And I wanted and so to make what, a website. It was just going to be like, it was going to be like, am I SWAT? And yeah, like, click to find out. Am I SWAT <laughs> it was or not? Called, am I SWAT or not? And it was going to have a right. picture and you're going to rank how. Was, and it was going to be like a picture of a cat. Or actually, this was pre-cat pictures. This was before the internet had turned over to cat pictures. Uh, <laughs> if you can, if you, if you can imagine such a day, right. such a dark day in our our history, far back in the misty, misty halls of memory. Um, but yeah, geez, one hundred million dollars. <laughs> Roommate John used to say that all the time. He loved that that movie. Or at least the commercials for that movie. Yeah, I, I love scenes. By the way, they don't try to do this often. Where like something will happen in slow motion, but then they'll sort of dub it in. Reg- so like an actor will be trying to say something in a natural voice, but it'll it'll happen in, in whatever. You, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about if you watch the trailer. Yeah, <laughs> where like yeah, where like the actor is speaking at normal voice, but it's like get out of here. <laughs> I you know I don't know I I sort of enjoyed uh, SWAT Firefight the direct to Netflix sequel with uh, with Gabrielle Macht of um, 
of uh, Suits, the USA show Suits, and uh, Robert Patrick, who was the the T two T one T one thousand, right? Like. Uh, uh, in T2, yeah, yeah, SWAT firefight. Oh, Check that out the, on Netflix. The, the, Terminator, uh, the female Terminator from Terminator 3 is also in that one. So oh, wait, yeah. is SWAT firefight a sequel to the movie SWAT, or is it a another movie adaptation of the 1975 television series SWAT? <laughs> like, is it a reboot? Is it a, is it a spiritual sequel? Is it an adaptation? No, I think it's a spiritual sequel. On a scale of one to World War Z, how close to the source material? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't know the 1970s show, I, but I, you know, I have, of course, seen both SWAT and SWAT Firefight. So uh, I'd say that it is like like uh, one. What one being Gus Van Zandt's shot for shot remake of Psycho, and ten being World War Z, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would ten, say, yeah, ten being less of a faithful adaptation, right? Right. Yeah. So lower is more faithful. I would say that this clock's in at about a three, three and a half. Oh, okay, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Now, of course, this is well before the trend of swatting. You guys are, are familiar with this, right? You say you say right. that with the with the H with the aspiration like yeah. swatting. Swatting. Will Wheaton. <laughs> you have just been swatted. Swatted. Uh, wait. Well, explain it in in case we we don't hang out on Reddit. Oh, okay. Swat someone, uh, which I do not recommend that you do. You should not. This I hope that it has somewhat come to an end because this was happening a lot in Los Angeles, and they the city issued a, a statement about how people would be punished rather severely for it. And I think some people might have gone to jail. But what you do is you call the police and you tell them that there's some sort of awful, awful situation at a celebrity's house. Like you find the address of a celebrity uh, or an important person of some sort or another, the person you want to prank, and then you call the police and you're like. Uh, look, someone is in here with a gun. Like, get here right away, right? And so all of a sudden, like, you know, Bill Murray's eating dinner, and all of a sudden, like, a SWAT team shows up at his house uh, and, like, sweeps his house and uh, at great expense to the taxpayers of the cities of Los, city of Los Angeles and the state of California, finds nothing, and then, like, departs, like, disgruntled. Yeah, well, leave um, it, probably, like, leaving a trail of destruction in their, in their wake, right? Cause yeah, yeah. Bust mm-hmm. into a house like that. It's not like the, it's not like Bill Murray's precious art collection is really respected by the, you know... Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're in Los Angeles. Is swatting was swatting like several months ago like that big of a deal? Was it a really big deal? You know, Pete, I don't watch local news. Oh, why would you not want to watch local Los Angeles news? Do you enjoy your life or something? What's wrong? <laughs> I, I also I think Bill Murray lives in upstate New York. Oh, it was happening in New York. You said no. I think Bill Murray lives there. Oh, okay. <laughs> See, I, I just going off of Zombie Land. Zombie Land, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is. I mean, is there anything to be said? I mean, this this year's movies are, you know, I don't know, Superman, uh, the, the Iron Man three. I mean, by Superman, I mean Man of Steel, right? Uh, Iron Man three, uh, Fast and Furious six. I mean. You know, we, we've come a long way from Too Fast, Too Furious, Too Fast and Furious 6, or Furious 6. As, uh, yes, as, that's, that's, like, I, I, that's like personally thanking Justin Lin, right? Like, that's like, hey, you did a really great job, buddy. <laughs> like, uh, you did much better than John Singleton did, even though he was a much Here's the thing, like, and I'm, I'm going to put an optimistic spin on this and say that, like, no matter how mediocre you think the movies coming out now are, when enough time passes, you will look back on a list of summer 2013 with, like, nostalgia and fondness 
Yeah. Uh, we'll be like, oh, do you remember Benedict Cumberbatch when he was in the, uh, you know, before. Yeah, it's be- like, oh, Benedict Cumberbatch before he went crazy and like yeah. started a cult. <laughs> <laughs> Before he won that Olympic gold medal in curling that he did. Because <laughs> like, Benedict Cumberbatch can do anything he wants, pretty much, I think. Right? Like, basically, the Superman. Um, oh, man. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, we'll look back. I mean, the, the Return of the King of this year is Catching Fire, like Hunger Games 2, right? That's like the, the latter, the late in the year, big action, spectacular thing that's going to come out. Yeah, probably. But it's, I mean, I think it's... I think that this will be the the year of three movies uh, where they take over the White House, right? Like Olympus yeah. has fallen, uh, GI Joe Rise of Cobra or Retaliation, not Rise of Cobra, GI right. Joe Retaliation, and White House Down, and White House Down. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's well, another. Maybe when White House Down comes out, maybe that's another podcast that we should do where we where we uh, you know really do a comparative comparative lit. Uh, reading of all all three of those. Oh, movies. geez, I thought I was going to get without get away without having the CGI Joe retaliation. <laughs> now, geez, Louise, I was off that week, guys. I was off that week. <laughs> oh man, but I don't know. Those first two movies passed without incident. I don't think anyone remembers them except for us. I don't know whether that's because of some sort of science fiction or mystical phenomenon that has erased <laughs> everyone's memory, or whether perhaps they did not. They just did not see it. But yeah, I mean, I think they're. Mm-hmm. This will be remembered as the year of Yeezy, of course, like the greatest album yet released. Yeezus. Yeezus. That's right. It's not called Yeezy. It's called Yeezus. Oh, jeez. <laughs> okay, let's go back to, uh, let's take it back to 1993, right? Okay. And okay. Because the hits, the hits. We have that... to go deeper. This is interception, people. We to, we're going to try to plant this idea somewhere. Which means we have to talk twice as fast when we're talking about 1983. Okay, guys, we're going back to 1983. See, now it You're gets going... interesting because, like, you don't think of the 90s as, like, a golden era of movie making, but then you look at the list of movies that came out in summer 1993, and they seem like, you know, towering monuments to the human spirit. Right. <laughs> compared with, like, the blockbusters of today. So go, go ahead and read the list. Okay, here we, here we go. And Red, just jump in with commentary whenever you have it. The first thing I notice about this is that uh, Box Office Mojo records, and this may be just record the uh, the amount of record keeping that we have, but Box Office Mojo records five hundred uh, data for five hundred six uh, film releases in two thousand three, uh, and only two hundred fifty nine in nineteen ninety three. So there there were fewer movies. Um, in in 1993, or, or fewer movies, I guess, of note, or that meet the threshold for box office mode, but Joe. But number one uh, is a, a little-known art film called Jurassic Park. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Do-do-do. You should go back, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to our, our podcast with special guest star, world's foremost authority on Jurassic Park, Carrie Jerzyk. Uh, about Jurassic Park 3D, which we did only a couple months ago, because that movie is just yeah. so wonderful, and it really bears a full discussion. So good. Yeah, yeah definitely. Th- right. I think there's like a totally legit argument to be made that Jurassic Park is and always shall be like the greatest summer blockbuster of all time. You know, because you could you could talk about like Terminator Two and everything, but that's rated R, so it, in a yeah. way it doesn't. It, it's not the it's not the the. Uh, prototypical, the, the the shining example of like what all movie executives aspire to produce. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, there's like a commercial where it's like, it'll take 10 films of the Avengers to equal the <laughs> mythology in one Jurassic Park. <laughs> like, 
Oh, so many explosions. But yeah, that movie is just, and it's just so, I mean, it's, I don't want to get into another full discussion of Jurassic Park because we did it for like an hour and a half last time. But, uh, oh gosh, that movie is. So is, is if only Jurassic Park had come out in 1993, some are dying. Dying. What else we got? Mrs. Doubtfire. Number yes. two. Oh, wow. <laughs> we should record an overview of that that no one will buy. <laughs> <laughs> It was a it was a run by fruiting. <laughs> that movie's really surprisingly good. It's you know what? It's well shot. That 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 I think is one of the things that I, when I look at a movie from like 1993, I admire the lighting a whole lot. I feel like <laughs> that lighting in movies isn't as good as it used to be. Sure, uh, because everything everything stuff on like sets, you know, as opposed to like locations. Everything is, that up, by the way. <laughs> everything is gritty is a you know gritty reboot now so everything is you know very dark and very you know uh even like they don't they mrs doubtfire knew how to hit sally field's skin with light like i'll tell you that much <laughs> like they need to go back to film school to figure out how to do that whoever that schmuck guy was who made lincoln he should have paid attention to the guy who made jurassic park and done it the way that he did it uh, <laughs> wait can you can we just because we're never like rattle off like the top top like at least 10 but there's some really interesting ones between 11 and 20 i've got to say i thought there i thought uh, i was gonna i was gonna i thought that you know the the shtick would be if he had just released July, jurassic park and mrs doubtfire okay, sorry. Dying. Dying. <laughs> but the number three <laughs> movie is and we can stop this after this but the number three movie is the fugitive I didn't Dayenu my wife. <laughs> I, I don't, don't care. care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So here, I'll rattle the rest off. The Firm. Uh, that's Tom Cruise, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Sleepless in Seattle. Indecent Proposal. In the Line of Fire. The Pelican yes. Grief. Brief. The, no, The Pelican <laughs> Grief. That is the a, Firm in the same year. Yeah, two yeah, uh, I, John Grisham movies. I, I wanted to comment. I, we can get to the end of 10, but I wanted to, to swing back to that real quick when we, if you want to Schindler's List. Ooh. And Cliffhanger. Yeah. Three <laughs> was like that, the, the year of Steven Spielberg because he did both Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, which is like... A, that's a hell of a sort of a back-to-back uh, so double Schindler, play. Right Schindler's there. List is interesting because it was they opened it in limited release to make it Oscar eligible on fifteenth uh, of December that year, and though it went on to gross almost a hundred million dollars, you know it wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a huge wide it wasn't a huge wide release. So what uh, what do you think about the uh, prevalence of John Grisham in nineteen ninety three, Ben? Well, was, there's the two John Grisham, and then you've also got uh, the Fugitive in there, which are interesting because these are you don't really see these kind of movies in the last few years. Like I can't remember the last really good legal thriller that came out, um, or even like a just kind of a, a generic crime movie. I think TV procedurals have kind of like taken the field. Of people in court or cops chasing after people. Yeah, but it's the um, mid it's the mid budget movie, right? Generally, right? Right. I was actually, I actually did see a kind of a very nineties esque um, movie, which was Side Effects. Yeah, uh, Steven Soderbergh in the last, but nobody saw it. Oh yeah, and like it only the only reason it got made is because Steven Soderbergh wanted to make it. Well, yeah, and he could also do it you know cheaply because he does all those stuff with i mean side effects had professional actors in it but he does all the right. stuff with with amateur actors and uh you know shooting editing directing all doing everything himself you know yeah 
but, but I just think it's interesting that you don't the legal thriller genre and obviously in the 90s here it was dominating and it's mm-hmm. basically dead well yeah. we'll see if Benedict Cumberbatch can bring it back when he plays uh, <laughs> Julian Assange on the run then, from the law I also yeah. noticed that, that if you go further down the list between 11 and 20 so a, a couple of, uh, what I consider to be sort of all time classic comedies was a, so, so right at number 11 uh, sorry, so number 10 cliffhanger which is great then number 11 is Free Willy <laughs> <laughs> Uh, number 12 is like another one of those big prestige films, Philadelphia. Um, but then number 13, Groundhog Day. They were like really neck and neck. Number 14, Grumpy Old Men. Um, (laughs) and then number 15, one of my favorite comedies growing up, Cool Runnings. Uh, followed by number 16, one of my mom's favorite comedies of the 90s, Dave. (laughs) I Um, love Dave. Do we talk talk to, uh, George, to George S., what's his name? Oh. The guy, the producer, the producer of Dave was on the podcast. Oh, right, right, right. The, the gentleman from uh, Ghostbusters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was his name? I, I, we not remember his name, right? Uh, um, yeah, we do. We'll Google for it right now. Oh, come on. That's, yeah. a, that's a shame. <laughs> that's just, that's <laughs> just, a, that's a travesty. <laughs> that was a great conversation. Yeah, it really was. And then I, I do want to mention, so number 17, Rising Sun, which is another one of these sort of like business slash legal thrillers. Um, and number 18, what I consider to be like the best of, which is amazing, like in the same year as Cliffhanger, uh, Demolition Man. So it was a big year for sort of like mid-period Stallone. Mm. Um <laughs> And then number number nineteen, Sister Act Two, which we can sort of forget about. But number twenty, sort of uh, one of my favorite westerns of all time, a Tombstone, where Kurt Russell with a really epic mustache, if you've never seen it, and Val Kilmer being kind of a badass. Wait, let's not let's not. Uh, I mean, not only did Sister Act Two didn't it introduce Lauren Hill to the masses, yeah. but it also it also introduced that arrangement that every high school choir has sung of uh, "Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee." Um, Right, uh, that's like joyful, joyful, Lord, we adore thee. Uh, that I, that in fact, I, in my distinguished career as a substitute choir teacher, coached <laughs> choirs to uh, right. to learn. Well, wait, go back to this Lauren Hill. So you're saying that the real miseducation of Lauren Hill was at the was at the, the was Catholic in school yeah was Lord in a Catholic school. Yeah, <laughs> Michael C. Gross. I was confusing him with George C. Scott, but it's Michael <laughs> C. Gross, who is awesome, and you should listen to our podcast interview with him and yeah. respect his work because he's awesome. Intr- yeah, right, really super, really interesting guy. Sister Act is, I think, the only movie I've watched on Laserdisc. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and Tombstone, right? Like for me, Groundhog Day belongs. Like belongs in the pantheon of true, like truly great movies. Capital T, capital G, capital M. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. With love, actually. Uh, not <laughs> not Adam's Family Values and Wayne's World, which are Adam's Family Values is actually really good. Have you watched it recently? Not recently, no. I watched it again about it's about six months ago. That movie is really funny and very clever. Like the, the summer camp bit is like. <laughs> Like the fish out of water thing is like older than the hills, but it, it works really well. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And it's uh, I'm like, it was Charles Adams wrote the character. Paul Rudnick wrote the movie. And did he wrote, go on to write anything? I guess he wrote the screenplay to the Nicole Kidman Stepford Wives. Jeez, that's unfortunate because that movie was really clever. I really liked that movie. Jo- uh, Joan Cusack is great in it. 
Um, you skipped okay. over it, but I got to mention uh, number 22 is Rookie of the Year. Uh, oh! I it was, <laughs> there, was a, there was a series of movies that were all about like somehow finagling so that like kids would be playing in the major leagues. And that this was this was part of that vanguard of movies. You know what surprised me? Way down at 27 is The Nightmare Before Christmas. I would have thought that that movie would have at least broken the top 20. But maybe it was like one of these that's more of a cult classic where like, you know, at the time it wasn't like huge, huge, but then people keep coming back to it. Yeah, it also, I mean, it could have, it could have made a lot of money on, uh, on DVD. Yeah. Ray, right. And I, I think at the time you, you didn't, it was, this was pre Pixar or at least very early Pixar. I think at the time animated movies in general, just non-live action movies didn't have the credibility. I think they do now. Yeah. It was, you, between... get a lot, you wouldn't get a lot of adults in the theaters to go see a claymation movie as I think you would now. It, yeah. it, it was between, uh, well, I don't know how fantastic Mr. Fox do, but uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was between the heyday, the sort of second heyday of Disney with, um, you know, Little Mermaid with the, the Mencken Ashman movies and the, then the, like the Pixar. Well, the Lion King came out in 1994. Yeah. So you're still very much in the heyday of Disney movies. Well, sure. But it was, then it was, that was Elton John, Tim Rice. I mean, for me, like. I don't know. For me, something... I, I'm not saying The Lion King is a bad movie. I would never say that. But for me, something really changed between, what, Aladdin and, you know, and The Lion King. Um, I, I don't know. For me, just, the, Lion, the Lion King is like... Like, there's a, there's a saying. Um, it's a giant skyscraper. Like, that's when you know it's in decline. Right, like it's like because because it's like all right, you have nothing better to do with your money than to invest it into like a, like so like the Pan Am building, sure, right, like the Sears Tower, right, all this kind of stuff, um, and like the Lion King to me is like the skyscraper of that era of Disney, where like it is a, it is I think a, a bit of a crowning achievement. Uh, certainly, in terms of as, as a cultural touchstone, um, but it is also distinct from the things that preceded and built up to it to the point where it's like they're already kind of gone by the time the Lion King comes around, right? Like the sort of the Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and Beauty and the Beast panache has kind of run out and has been replaced by something else. Uh, but this is also sort of like made in tribute to the success that those things built. Um, I don't know. I think the Lion King's pretty awesome. I don't know if that's a controversial opinion. No, no, no. It's it's not. It it is good, but it wasn't. I don't know. For for me, like to maybe just being a uh, like a fan of Little Shop of Horrors. Like I'm a, just a fan of the composer and lyricist. Um, oh, I gotcha. So you don't see it as as a Disney franchise thing. You see it as more of a, a spiritual successor to that kind of stuff. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I really see. I I really see in the the Mencken Ashman songs, right? I really see the work of those individual artists rather than rather than just the Disney machine. Well, isn't it the corporation that does all the things that we value, right? Like <laughs> all power to the all power to the hypnotoad. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Before we before we wrap up, we've got to go deeper. Deeper. <laughs> One more. One 1983 more domestic grosses. Number one little movie called Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Yup, jump. You want jump, jump. But then, here's the interesting thing. Look at number two and and cape with astonishment. Uh, number two, terms of endearment. <laughs> Like, I mean, it was, that was love, actually, of 1983, right? I mean, it's it's a it's a three hanky weepy. God. Okay. So, like, just just listen. Just li- I'm going to read off the top six, right? Book bookended by what? Uh, bookended by franchise pictures. But right. but and listen. Finally, before he does it, you'll see that there's a reason why he picks six as the number. 
But go on. <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Terms of Endearment, number two. Number three, Flashdance. Number four, Trading Places. Number five, War Games. Huh. Number six, Octopussy. <laughs> <laughs> right? And uh, then, then uh, Sudden Impact, Staying Alive, Mr. Mom, interesting, and Risky Business. Jeez. Okay, but things have gotten better. (laughs) (laughs) But like, okay, so that like, sort of. But uh, I don't know. This is interesting. Like, this is there's like highs and lows. It seems like the the variance is very great on the on this list in terms of quality. And these are, by the way, these are in order of box office grosses, right? These are the movies that made the most money. So we also have like another classic for me in the pantheon of, of best movies of all time, uh, National Lampoon's B- Vacation. Yeah. We've got Superman 3, The Big Chill, mm-hmm. Jaws 3D, Scarface. Yeah, yeah, that's surprisingly low down, like at 16. But I guess mm-hmm. it's like, that's a hard R, you know, so it didn't yeah. get all the teenagers taking each other on dates to see the chill And I feel like and- Scarface wasn't truly popular until people started liking him and approving of him as a lifestyle, which <laughs> took a little while to make that kind of interpretive act. Yeah. Uh, Yentl, and then uh, a couple of part two, Psycho 2 and Porky's 2. Mm. Psycho 2. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh oh hey forty eight. Who had the guts to direct Psycho Two? By the way, I'm just, just curious to check that one out. <laughs> like, that's a thankless assignment. Everyone, um, if we want to go really deep, <laughs> oh no, top grossing movie of 1913 <laughs> was called Traffic in Souls. Okay, it huh? made four hundred and thirty thousand dollars. That's the IMDb summary, which is law and must be obeyed, is a woman, with the aid of her police officer's sweetheart, endeavors to uncover the prostitution ring that has kidnapped her sister, and the philanthropist runs it. Yes, it is about prostitution and human trafficking and slavery. You could make that movie right now, (laughs) and people would go see it. In fact, I think it probably is... Oh, man. (laughs) Wow. Okay. It, it uses a rather uncomfortable term, white slavery, fairly heavily, which is not a good thing to have in a movie. Well, we can uh, fix that in the remake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just fix just, it in post. Yeah, exactly. You just, just control F, white slavery. Oh, here, here's a fun piece of trivia from Traffic and Souls. Um, <laughs> uh, the storyline concerns two young Swedish women immigrants who are approached by men solicited for, soliciting for slavery under the guise of a legitimate work offer. In the scenes filmed at the Battery, after the women are transported there from Ellis Island, real-life immigrants can be seen in the background. <laughs> so, like, they film it on location at Ellis Island, where, like, the things that we think of as Ellis Island are actually happening behind them on camera. <laughs> um, man, geez. How's that for a collision in worlds? <laughs> Excellent. Hey, do we, do we, did we learn any lessons from our, our stroll down memory lane? Like, uh... You know, I don't know. Stuff has always stu- there have always been good and bad movies. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's like the movies that came out when you were a teenager are the ones that you're always going to feel the most kindly. Because certainly, like I, I felt the best about the '90s movies. So I, I don't know if that means that the '90s were better. Maybe the '90s are better to us. 
I feel like part of the life of any of these works of art is in the conversations that we have about them. And so anywhere where people are talking about Mrs. Doubtfire, Mrs. Doubtfire is there. <laughs> and she's botching it up in the kitchen! <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, no, I, I feel like these art objects are still art objects and continue to evolve, right? Like the That's extremely, the, I mean, that's extremely scriptural, Pete, right? Like when two or three are gathered in Mrs. Doubtfire's name. I don't mean to be. I honestly don't mean to be sacrilegious or heretical by saying that. I think it reaffirms the principle, right? Which is that like ideas and things, especially things that you love, right? Like things that you love are there when people that you love are there talking about them, right? Like love, love. This is like the triumph of love over death, right? Like is 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 Mrs. Doubtfire, right? Like is is us still talking about Mrs. Doubtfire fondly, uh, you know, twenty long years after she passeth from the from this orb onto whatever wherever it is that Doubtfire's go when they die um which i guess is into a makeup can they don't keep makeup in cans touch we now your garments hem um <laughs> let me let me leave you with a tidbit from the trivia page from traffic and souls from from 1993 <laughs> just from 1913 sorry uh uh that just proves that nothing nothing has changed uh, Universal's press copy boasted that they had spent $200,000. Now, this is an interesting assignment. Uh, maybe we can do this uh, with Jeez. Google. Yeah, what is that in today's, yeah, in today's money? <laughs> $200,000. Maybe Wolfram Alpha uh, can tell us something about like what $200,000 in 1913 is. But uh, be that as it may... Uh, they had spent $200,000 to produce the film uh, in... Uh, it would be $4,761,904.76. Okay. So, uh, so a low-budget film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, it was unthinkable. Universal's press copy boasted they had spent $200,000 to produce the film. They also claimed it featured 700 scenes and a cast of 800 players. None of this was true. <laughs> They're like nobody will ever make a movie that has like you know more than seven hundred, <laughs> and it's like now nowadays that would like describe like you know your your mid budget, oh like like a Resident Evil type movie, not even like a really big extravaganza. Although that would have like twelve people recreated in CGI like eight hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's, no no people were harmed in the film of Resident Evil. Well. But Jovovich was horribly, horribly injured over and over again. <laughs> I think this I think this gathering of four podcasters is is drawing to a close. So uh Even know. Jiggly, all good jigglies must come to an end, right? <laughs> uh so um we're we're glad you uh were with us for this little stroll down memory lane. We will continue uh releasing podcasts every week. And uh, until next week, you can find us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Jaflack! Jaflack! <laughs> <laughs>